Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey and former director of the Abbey Theatre, Mr. Fiek McAneel. For it is the evening of the day that marks the end of an era, but it's much more upbeat than that. So, just before he exits through the gift shop and heads off to that digital cloud in the sky, Fiek was kind enough to sit down with me on his last working day and talk about everything from his love of the Abbey to the loneliness of the top corridor and those first few nicotine kicks of 2005, to the comfort of criticism, artistic independence and the tricky art of friendship. Fiat goes on to talk about his programming decisions, the cycle of controversies that go round and round and the solid, quiet rebellion in Rathgar. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome, Fiat, and congratulations on your new role as CEO uh, at the Digital Hub. Um, what does that job entail? That job entails essentially the, the Digital Hub Development Agency, as, as it's called by the Act, is there to promote and develop the Dublin 8 area in particular, to enhance it in terms of uh, digital awareness, uh, to create uh, work and employment there, to support startups who are involved in the technological and digital media uh, environment, and to make proper kind of deep connections between it and the local community. So it's a, it's a, it's a extraordinary privilege. I know the area well because I've lived there for over 25 years. So it's encouraging new, new ideas, encouraging creativity, encouraging startups, creating employment, uh, engaging with, uh, with the local community through education, through uh, community work, and, uh, and also made some major urban renewal projects. So it's uh, keep me busy. It's all very real now that you have a, another job to go to. Um, however, today is your last day working here at the Abbey. How are you feeling about it all? Well, it's a, like a mixed emotions. I'm uh, part of me is demob happy and that I'm leaving behind. Look, ultimately, any organisation you go into, or any job you go into, uh, if you can say two things, if you can say that you've left it in a better place, and if you can say that with pride, and I think both those things I can feel like. So it's mixed emotions. We're opening. Frank McGuinness's gorgeous, gorgeous uh, play Donegal tonight. I think that's a that's a good ending, starting with with, the, with or finishing with an opening of uh, of Frank's play. But yeah, I, I would I would be dishonest if I didn't say that there's mixed emotions. You know, if I snuck uh, backstage early today on my own to give it one last look at the theatre and the auditorium uh, that was created in my time, the new the new the, new, the way we we did new. So I was very proud of that, and uh, yeah, so it, it it would be mixed emotions. So you're much more of a because I was I was thinking today was your second last day. So you must you're kind of a close the door gently behind you kind of guy rather than a big you know celebrate the significance of it all. I think so. I think the work and the work of the Abbey and the, the work of the, both the artists on stage and the great team backstage and the staff. It's what it's all about. So, you know. Uh, I am modest enough, even though people might not agree with that. I, I in, in terms of my own personal space I'm very confident and comfortable with what I've achieved and I'm very proud of it and I just uh, I will leave stage left quietly <laughs> when you when you do look back on your it's over 11 years of, of productions what's your overall assessment of them well I mean uh, the overall assessment is that this is this is an extraordinary place it's you know the abbey really you know gets into your blood and I totally believe in the national theatre I totally believe in the abbey so you know one part of me my memory of the last 11 years is completely incessant you know it's just it's ongoing all the time you know you've got one play on you've got the next play on 
there's a controversy that comes around the corner, there's something you forgot, there's something that's brilliant. So you're always having to be agile and being aware of everything. And and then you have to manage, you know, and lead um, great teams, artistic teams and, and staff. So, you know, there, I've, I've lots of memories, but, but the, the one of, it's not so much relentless, but incessant sense of energy, you know, just when you've r- rode one wave, another wave comes and, you know, and you want to try and, and keep on board. So it's, and I love that energy. And I suppose I have that energy. I have that optimism as well. You know, I think, I think it's not a job you can take. Uh, with feeling that you've any short-term gains, you know, if you if you, if you think you're going to achieve what you want in a year, two, three years in the Abbey, you're mistaken. I think it takes you a period. And some of my predecessors, uh, you know, their 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 tenure was shorter than, than than mine, and I had the privilege of being able to sustain a few kind of programming journeys, but also try and achieve medium long-term goals uh, and that's what I'm proud of the short-term gain thing really didn't interest me if I was if I had to listen to the press or the media or and, and try and uh, initiate immediate kind of uh, achievements I don't think I'd be here as long as I have when you well what was your first day like here your first week I mean it's entirely different circumstances when you started here yeah my, my, my I remember I remember coming in and feeling quite lonely Actually, I mean, my first day of the job, uh, it's no no secret that it's a job I wanted. I applied for it before, for uh, four or five years, six years before that. I'd worked here before as an assistant to Noel Pearson. I was his PA, essentially, or his assistant for three, four years. So I love the Abbey and I'm walking away feeling so grateful and so proud of the Abbey still, which is great. So my feeling was of loneliness, trepidation, not knowing... Uh, what to expect uh, oh my god now that I've wanted a job what do I do you know and so everybody's very helpful and very uh, there was a lot of uh, you know a lot of welcome for me from, from various various people I remember Tony Wayfield uh, welcoming me but I think the the it all changed within a couple of weeks you know um, the the lack of financial reporting the significant pressure of the Abbey uh, the fact that it wasn't well funded and it still isn't well funded I know people will be listening to this and thinking God the Abbey's getting 5.8 but it's not enough the Abbey Theatre uh, needs proper funding uh, needs sustained funding to create the best work it can for uh, for our audiences and, and to support artists and it's just it's it's um, it didn't have it doesn't have that I mean the Abbey this year is on 5.8 million when I started in 2005 it was on about, about 5.1 million and that year we posted the biggest deficit, you know, almost four million. And so the shock of that, the shock that I had to uh, essentially change the way I thought the Abbey would work out for me regarding programming, uh, when I discovered, when it was discovered that uh, there was additional money missing uh, or that it wasn't accounted for, actually not missing, uh, it meant that, that I had to, uh, what I did was I went outside the building, went across the road, uh, to the Little Jam uh, shop, I bought a packet of cigarettes. It was the first cigarette I smoked in about seven years. And I spent the rest of two years chewing those cigarettes. And I knew I had to go back in there a different person. I knew I had to go back into the Abbey uh, a different animal, in a way. Uh, f- uh, and it was my first experience of proper change management. And uh, the following two years uh, were quite intense because of that. So you said you had to make different decisions based on your programming. Can we talk about your programming a little bit? And um, so that would mean that you programmed with a financial bottom line in mind to try and recoup 
what was necessary? No, I mean there was a couple of things, uh, Lisa. One was trying to solve, trying to uh, trying to uh, uh, you know make sure the abbey was sustainable. So that was one side. So if you leave, if you leave two things, one is whatever we did in the box office. Um, whatever programming we put on was one thing, but ultimately the only way that we could uh, survive as, as a national theatre was if the state gave us some additional money based on conditions. So I, I have said in the past, I'll say now the Abbey was the first national institution uh, to be bailed out. We were bailed out by the state. The government in November of 2005 made a, made a decision, took a decision to save the Abbey financially. You know, and John O'Donoghue, who was then Minister of the Arts, was instrumental in that decision, as indeed was uh, Olive Braden, who was chairperson of the of the uh, of the Arts Council at the time. And it was a major, major decision. the The government of Ireland uh, ratified and validated the Abbey Theatre as a national theatre. It gave the Abbey money through uh, uh, through the Arts Council on condition that we achieved a few things: major structural change, major governance change, and did our business better. And uh, that's very, very important. And so aligned with that, that's on one side, and that meant you know, rebuilding the theatre in terms of the structure, the organisation, looking at all the costs and all that. And at the same time, I had to keep the show on the road, so to speak. I had to produce plays, put on plays, and make sure those plays were seen by as many people as possible. Now, some plays, you know, we do uh, don't sell out, and that's right too. That's why we have a subsidy. We have a subsidy for two reasons, in my view. One is to make theatre accessible to uh, all our citizens by, by keeping price low and ex- and our, our work, whether it's in community education or, or, or the literature department or the archives or online, that we actually are accessible. And, and the other, and the, and the other uh, reason is for us to take risks. They're, that's what the subsidy is there for. And we take risks and we've always taken risks. Um, and so I had to get that balance right. I mean, there's a gorgeous... You know, when, it's a phrase that's necessarily not in fashion anymore, but we are in show business. And there's two words in that, that's the show and there's business. And I'm very, uh, I'm, I, I, I like a risk, I like taking a risk, I like putting a program together over a year and going, well, that'll be a risk or that won't, or, and finding ultimately we know very little about behaviour and how people receive plays. And I'm sure, Lisa, you've, you've gone to places at the Abbey where you go, God, that's going to do great business and hasn't and vice versa. And it's not, and that's really, you know, the, the cliche is true, if we, if we all knew uh, how to, uh, you know, uh, which play would make money would probably be millionaires at this stage. So when you, when you programme, are you thinking it's what you think the Irish theatre going public want to see, that you feel they should see, expose them to, or is it entirely what you want to see and you want to work with certain artists and bring them into well, the fold? Uh, there, is, there, is a, there's a, uh, there is a subjectivity to how you programme. No doubt about that. But you're driven by the, you know, and I've, you know, I've been artistic director of the Project Arts Centre, uh, and so on. So, so you're driven by the original or the artistic policy of the theatre, fundamentally. And the Abbey Theatre's artistic policy was to engage and reflect our society, which was essentially our modern interpretation of what Lady Gregory, uh, Lady Gregory and Yeats established all those years ago with Edward Martin. And what I inherited from my predecessors, the great Joe Dowling, Tomas McCona, Lila Doolan, um, Patrick Mason in particular, was that there's three ways of doing this. One is by new work, 
absolutely commissioning new work and putting it on to uh, the classics challenging different generations contemporary generations with 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 with, with the classics and and third uh, international work you know how to bring work or international work by international writers and so you get that mix right so it's kind of like a it's like a formula but a, almost like a rubik's cube where what what you're trying to do within all those three is a challenge artists so i would start by saying okay what play should I give to an artist, a director perhaps, or a writer in terms of adaptation, or what challenge will I give a, uh, give a, a writer on which stage I'll put them on. And then you think of the audience, of course, and you think of the audience about, well, how are we going to sustain 14 productions a year, uh, get an, you know, two, two and a half million at the box office. And I know that Patrick Mason and Joe Dowling find this a, 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 a kind of a beguiling and enticing, and that's the balance, you know. But ultimately, no playwright and no actor wants to perform for nobody, you know. Uh, so it's 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 uh, it, they they want to perform as many, and that's my job trying to develop all that. Uh, and so does, so you get the balance right in a year. Some years I've got the balance right. Sometimes I I I didn't, or sometimes because of the funding being cut back. You need to uh, call on some of what are called the family jewels, the great Casey plays, the John B. Keynes, the Murphys plays, that, the Freels plays that you feel uh, that are really important to do uh, and every generation needs to see them and you hope that it will do well at the box office. But then you try and make sure that, that it's challenging artistically and how you might match you know, an interesting director. And for instance, like asking Alba Common to direct uh, Pygmalion, you know, I know that people were uh, astonished by that decision that I programmed that in that way. And there was kind of, it may seem to be the obvious one now, but it wasn't at the time. So that's an example where I take a particular classic play, which the Abbey have never done. I put that right beside translations to the two great, in my view, two of the great pillars of a particular type of playwriting in a year, in, in a century. Uh, Shaw and 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 Brian Friel. I know Brian didn't necessarily uh, uh, take to Shaw as he told me so, but I wanted to put Pygmalion and translations together. Two plays about social engineering, two plays about about about, about language, about communication, about power, about sociological kind of issues of community, whether it's London or or, or Ballybeg, and so. Those are the kind of programs I, I like, two plays supporting each other in the summer. And, and hopefully, uh, which I also enjoyed, is, uh, is uh, seeing uh, our audiences come to see it in flocks. Um, as director, you are answerable to the board of directors. Um, how much sway do they have in your decision making and how has that relationship been? Yeah, the relationship between the board and myself uh, would be tense and productive. I think uh, there would be always the... Uh, I guard jealously. And this is my, my, my present to my successes. I guard as the artistic independence of the directors of the theatre, as in the artistic directors of the theatre, to programme... Uh, the plays subject to um, the artistic policy. And if the artistic policy is clear, which it is, is the mission statement is clear, and uh, as of recently as well, which is very important and welcomes the inclusion of gender equality, if those are the issues that are there, then that's how one, one, one should program. And the minute a board starts interfering in the programming, uh, then uh, it's, it's, it's a losing battle, you know? And um, the, my board never interfered 
in in uh, in the, when it came to um, programming. They never did, but there was a tension there, and that's right. That's a healthy tension, you know. I mean, where the board were concerned, and I think, uh, and I would encourage uh, my success to continue is where the Abbey moved into the political space, you know. And I suppose if if you're if you're to ask me, which you didn't, but if you do, which is what, what I'm most proud of in terms of not necessarily program, uh, I'm proud of the fact that the Abbey re-established its commitment to engaging with the political and social context of the time and that it moved, shifted uh, into that uh, arena in a much more progressive uh, and much more open way. And, and that, I think, caused, uh, would have caused uh, some anxiety at board level. We're very interested here about the, the beginnings and your, I suppose, your first contact with theatre. But so, can I take you back to the beginning? Uh, what kind of household was it? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was born in a hospital that's no longer existing, which is a private hospital called Mount Carmel, um, and I grew up for, for the first six seven years in Storgan and then moved to Rathgar. Um, the house was, um, you know, a bit of a crazy house. We were an Irish language speaking household. My parents both speak Irish. Uh, my father was a um, broadcaster and program maker and involved in current affairs. My mother was a genealogist and, and she at the, at the time uh, worked from the home uh, to raise uh, five uh, crazy siblings. Um, so it was a kind of a frenetic household, passionate household, an argumentative household and totally dysfunctional as every other family. Um, and we were exposed to the arts only because my because my grandfather was a painter and my grandmother on the other side was a gay scholar. So we had artists and filmmakers and uh, you know academics uh, in the house all the time. You know, so we were encouraged uh, to see plays. We were encouraged to go to galleries. We were encouraged to you know uh, seek kind of our sense of self or our sense of identity in ways other than formal education, even though I ended up going to, going to university. But well, where do you come in the family? Are you I'm the eldest. The eldest. Yeah, I'm the okay. eldest. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm the eldest. And um, I mean, I had a tricky enough childhood, a tricky enough adulthood, you know, as, as you know, but no more different than anybody else. So I, I had to rebel and uh, run away from home and do all the other things that the one is expected to do as a as a as an apprentice James Dean but yeah ultimately uh, uh, yeah out the eldest and uh, and that, that that brings his own responsibilities you know yeah over the years the conversations we've had I suppose I was surprised to hear that you were from Rathgar with mines initially still organ I knew but, your father yes yeah we can talk about that later I guess I always got the impression yeah you weren't uh, quite settled there you were unhappy can you go into a bit more detail about why you felt that way right I mean I, I don't know. I mean, I was restless. I mean, you know, I was restless as a, as a, I mean, I can't understand it, whether it was his anxiety or the pressure or, or, or of being the eldest in a, in a, in a family of, you know, a kind of major kind of personalities. Um, but, uh, you know, it took me really until my mid twenties before I settled down in my, my own space. Well, you know, I shouldn't have gone to college straight away. I mean, I went straight into UCD, uh, into Trinity from, from an all Irish speaking school, Clash Joan, I should have taken time out. This gap year thing, I think, is really good. I think, I think, I, I love the and I see that, and you see that as well, Lisa, in the Abbey. Some brilliant people working in front of house and and customer service who are just going, are just taking their time, right? Not having to nail what they're going to do. I envy them that. I envy them the fact that they, uh, you know, at twenty eight or thirty, they may decide what what they're going to do, whether to go back to do a PhD or not. I wish that happened to me. I think I, that would be, you know, I was driven. I was driven to get out of the house as fast as I can. I was driven 
that because I probably inherited that drive from my parents, you know, and I suppose I achieved a lot. I was director of the Project Arts Centre at 28, you know, and ran the project for whatever it was, can't remember, seven years or or so forth. Uh, so there was that drive. So in a way, it, it's uh, uh, something I've learned in the last kind of year just to kind of take a step back and reflect on all that, you know. I was um, surprised to see that you had uh, ran away to Copenhagen. For a while, because and that was, did you take a year out then and just kind of yeah. Well, I, so what happened in second year in university was that I directed a play in Irish called Ungeal by Brendan Behan with Liam O'Malley and um, I did really well. It was a really good production, I thought, and did really well. And I kind of the bug hit me, and realised, okay, this is it. Partly, maybe you know, I know you're not a psychoanalyst, so I won't. You're not even my counselor, but I think the idea that it was the one art form that my that my father or family weren't necessarily involved with all you know as such you know although later I, I knew that my that my grandfather and my great-grandfather had connections with the abbey but at the time it meant that I was able to forge my own identity and my own sense of creativity you know I'm not an artist so but I, I felt that that I that I would that I could uh, be myself and get a sense of self by being uh, by working in, in creating something you know so I thought directing was the way to do it and then I, I decided, I went away that summer with uh, my girlfriend at the time to uh, Copenhagen for the summer <clears throat> and I uh, loved it, loved the freedom of it, I loved the, the, the sexual freedom of it, the, you know, the sense of, you know, this is a state, social democratic state with a minimum wage, so no matter where you worked, and I worked in Burger King, uh, you're on a minimum wage, after three months you got free dental care, you got a free library card, you know, just, and, you know, I, I came back, but, but then returned to Copenhagen for a longer stint, just to sp- and spend time there in, in, a, in a squat and, and loved it. And uh, until I knew that uh, my father at the time used to send me newspapers every so often, and then, I re- you know, I lost the sense of how to read uh, newspaper properly. I knew then, look, better come home. And uh, I came home and uh, I thought then I wanted to be an actor. I thought, oh, the easy way to get into theatre is becoming an actor, easy. So I enrolled in the Oscar School of Acting. I was a terrible, terrible actor, and I realised the greatest thing that uh, the, the greatest courage, whatever writers on their own, but the greatest courage really uh, I've witnessed in this theatre is is uh, is uh, actors and and that capacity. So anyway, long story short, uh, Joe Dowling gave me a job uh, in the Gaiety Theatre, and also as the first ever administrator of the Gaiety School of Acting, and that put me through my final two years in college. So I was studying in Trinity and working in the Gaiety at night as an ASM. So you, did, you decided not to pursue centre stage but, but then found out that you'd be much better equipped to be a producer? Well I, I didn't know that at the time but I was ambitious for myself, I was ambitious in getting involved in theatre, I was gulping it down, I was ravenous in terms of understanding the process, working with, you know, sitting down with various amazing actors and learning from them so I loved it, I loved being in the theatre, I loved, uh, I loved working in the theatre, and I did it for nothing or very little. And then bit by bit, I realised that oh, there may may well be a career here. And and uh, you know, I didn't do that so I didn't do that consciously, but I had a few very good breaks. And uh, I worked for Michael Colgan, I worked for Mars Cassidy, I worked for Joe Dowling, I worked for Noel Pearson, uh, and then uh, I left. Then when Gary Hines came in. She didn't uh, need me. She had her own team, which is absolutely the right thing to do. And then uh, I went, and luckily I, I, I got the job uh, as artistic director of the Project Art Centre. 
What is it that you wanted from your career? Because it, it sounds as if that you came back with a plan. Um, you are ambitious. Uh, I'm kind of trying to decipher, are you trying to make your heart happy or do you have a long list of things you need to achieve? No, no I don't. No, I, I, I think... I think I think the the I was rare and I understand that that for me to be an active citizen, a full embracing citizen of our society, we all need to commit to that. We all make a commitment to how to change the world we're living in to the better. And I understood as time went on that the that I thought it might be politics, uh, and I didn't necessarily either have the courage for that or the or the. Uh, ability for that and in theatre in a very very modest way in a very modest way but in a, in a structured way I felt that the Abbey could and certainly I personally could through the Abbey and through Project Arts Centre through all my work in between that try and make some modest uh, sense of what was happening through uh, producing art and uh, and working with artists whether it was Paul Mercier in, in film or in theatre or Marina Carr and I felt utterly and totally fulfilled to this day I feel fulfilled about that uh, so the ambition was, was was diverted into that I felt I needed to be in positions of authority where I could make decisions that had an impact if that's what authority uh, ambition is and that's 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 definitely an ambition but it wasn't naked ambition to achieve something in, in the work I want to, to do uh, I, you know so how to, how to how to how to sustain and uh, and and positively uh, embrace your ambition in a way that may make sense in the world around you and that's something that I, that, uh, that I managed to do. Will you talk to me a little about Brian Friel and Joe Dowling? Would I be right in thinking that they were mentors to you? Yeah, I had different ones. I mean, you know, I had different... I, I went into a phase, I had a lot of, you know, so-called father figures that I looked up to, you know, and at the time, uh, you know my closest friend in theatre in terms of uh, of the person that I would that we would both share a lot and we would grew up together and we worked together and we supported her as Marina Carr you know that's my cl- terms of just knowing her very well and know- and we grew up together I, you know she had a play on the project I produced her, one, her first play in the Peacock called Ullaloo uh, so I worked with her. So if, if, if you know, mentor maybe maybe too strong word, but Marina would be the closest person. But in terms of of, of learning the business, uh, I I worked for Noel Pearson. I worked for Joe Dowling, uh, and Joe would have been very supportive of me. And Joe Joe's great skill is encouraging young people. Extraordinary skill. You know, he just he's not ageist at all. He does what you know, and he's. He's, and uh, had, so I owe a lot to him and I owe a lot to Noel in terms of giving me all the freedom he had here. Brian I got to know uh, by helping produce Dancing at Doomsday here. So I got to know Brian um, very, very well over a pe- long period of time, uh, both personally and, and publicly. Shrewd man, uh, tough man, tough critic. Um, and would not be afraid to tell me what he thought, you know. So, uh, but so it's so you have different you, different relationships, and and in this business of ours, theatre making, you make a lot of friends in a very very short space of time that you may not connect with uh, again, but 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 uh, for various reasons, uh, but you'll always remember those moments, and, and that's that's unusual about our business. You know? I might get back to the friendship thing um, shortly. Um, you do strike me as a very resilient and 
and have a buoyant nature about you. How do you measure failure and is it more beneficial than success? Um, you know, uh, Maureen Gaffney wrote a book, which is very a bestseller called, I think it's called Flourishing, you know, and, and I launched that book and she said, I'm on the, I'm at 11 in terms of scale there, you know, which, which is really dangerous. But I am a naturally optimistic person. Um, I am a passionate person and I have a vision, you know, the vision of the, of the delivery. And uh, I, I, you deal with more failure than you do with success all the time. You, you know, and at the Abbey, theatre which is a very public space you know you can make public mistakes as I did with, with the uh, Waking the Nation season and, and the lack of gender equality I made other mistakes when it came to maybe putting on a play that, that uh, either wasn't ready or wasn't produced well and we can so you kind of learn very quickly to deal with mistakes see them for what they are be hurt by them there was moments when I used to sit down here uh, with Aideen Howard, myself and the team and go, okay, um, that production is going to get a walloping from the critics. Uh, who do we mind? Who do we look after? We look after the actors, we look after the team and try and, and work that through. And so uh, failure and mistakes and risk are a part and parcel of art making, of producing art. And you need to have a resilience to survive. And, you know, uh, my optimism is, is, I think, one of the reasons why I managed to survive uh, 11 and a half years at the Abbey. But also, I think I loved it. I loved what I did. Uh, and uh, that's an important thing as well. So, so you know, you, of course, you get derailed. You know, Arts Council funding being cut or public criticism or, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of controversy and they come every you know every 18 months or so you know and you have to assess them and you have to work out how to deal with it personally but also you you know i've staff here i've brilliant people here who want to see leadership and and there's a community that want to see us you know and you know a lot of people within our great business uh, you know have a lot of you know bad things to say about the abbey and uh and uh, a lot of them have good things and you try and you have to just try and assess the uh what where the real facts are and and then drive that um so it does it does pierce you personally then because i suppose if you're going to take the good praise you're going to have to take the, oh, yeah. the negativity yeah yeah i mean I, I i i don't trust praise you know i'd never trust praise which is maybe a problem i'm much more comfortable criticism i'm much more comfortable i can assess it i can deal with it i'm fascinated by who gives the criticism I'm fascinated by how that criticism may be consistent or not, uh, but it's much more familiar to me than success. Well, that's a counsellor's field out there, Fick. Um, <laughs> with almost a year's reflection about the Waking the Nation and Waking the Feminist movement now, um, were you surprised at the backlash? Um, no, there's a couple of things happened there. I mean, uh, I made a couple of mistakes. I, I made the big mistake was, uh, and I can, you know, you know, it's, you know, I, I think there was a, there was kind of a complicated scenario at the time. Um, I made some totally uh, uh, despicable comments on Twitter that I think, um, so my communication around defending the season was uh, inappropriate. And then I went, I went away on holidays. So that didn't help, the lacuna in terms of debate. I think there was absolute, there was, I totally admit, and I uh, and I acknowledge that at the, at the at the at the the meeting at the general public meeting that I made a mistake that I should have included, 
Uh, I think it's true to say that while I may not be uh, consciously biased, I, I'm, I'm more than likely to be unconsciously biased. And that's, that was a shock, you know. Uh, uh, I think some reactions were very hurtful. I think there was a lot of, uh, a lot of personal uh, attack on me and, and uh, by extension, the people around me. And there was a lot of pressure on, on my staff at the time, which I, I felt was very close to bullying and very close to it. But ultimately, I have to take responsibility for a mistake I made. And I've, I've said that publicly and I'll say it again. So um, I, I think there's things I could have done differently in terms of how I managed uh, the public um, outcry, uh, which is legitimate. And uh, the minute I came home, uh, where I went on my holidays, there was no internet access. So I actually genuinely for five days didn't know what was going on, which is a mistake. Uh, so when I came back, I knew what I had to do, which, which I'm never afraid of uh, engaging with, with, the, uh, with the issue, whether it's you know accessibility uh, in the peacock to uh, putting in a lift or dealing with the lack of gender. Uh, equality at uh, in my program, uh, so it was a tough couple of months, but for me professionally and, and privately, and uh, and I had to you know listen to it and be aware of it and respond to it, which I hopefully did. And it's great now that the uh, board, of the Abbey, have adopted a, a whole series of principles that are based on gender equality, and that uh, Neil and Graham will will continue to pursue that. You talk about it being show business, so I'm purposely going to move on from that question to how you handle friendships in this business. How does that work for you? I've, friendship in this business is, uh, is, is a tough one. It's tough, particularly in the, creative, uh, in the creative field. I have very few friends in the business, in what I would call friends. I mean, uh, I've loved times here, I've loved people who I've worked with in this organization uh, and who I worked with outside. But uh, when I started this job, I realized that I, I, I'm not beholden to anyone. And uh, it was what Brady Nochton uh, advised me of. Like, remember, you, nobody gave you that job. Uh, you didn't, you're not beholden to anybody. And stick to that. And that was the best advice I got. And it's true. It meant that um, that uh, I had I had my own sense of uh, of uh, perspective, and that I wasn't, and I couldn't get involved in uh, the political nature of uh, uh, the various groupings within any any arts community. So my my uh, my immediate understanding of this job was that I was on my own. You know, it's a lonely job. You know, it's a lonely job. Uh, and you have to surround yourself with the best people uh, and so therefore friendship uh, although I've maintained friendship with, with a lot of people including including Marina it, it, and Marco Rowe and, uh, and Jimmy Fay and so forth uh, it does get tested you know and you have to be very careful and you have to be really as straight as you possibly can at that you know so uh, I was very careful and mindful of that all through my time here about um boundaries around that. When you think in terms of legacy, what in your words is your legacy? Uh, I don't know. Uh, 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 I can't really say that. Uh, I think we did some great art. I know we did. I think we encouraged a lot of work. You know, I'm so proud of the work of, let's say, Stacey Gregg, Marco Rowe, 
I'm so proud of them, all the, the actors. I mean, it's, I mean, it's great to see an actor like Declan Condon watching him over the years, watching him develop, push himself and, and, and achieve greatness on the Abbey stage. Same with somebody like Derek Lacrotti, just watching them. And no matter what kind of play you give them, providing their cast well in that play, watching them achieve alchemy on that stage, is there something you know so proud of that you know and that, uh, so uh, I'm proud of the fact that that during the worst crisis in our history that I didn't cut uh, actors' salaries and that we tried to increase the amount of work for actors in this uh, at the Abbey. I'm proud that the Abbey still survives and is better than it is. Um, and this year has been such a successful year. Like Waiting the Nation has been an extraordinarily successful year in terms of box office, in terms of the, the different, the, you know, the extraordinary work of, of David Ireland on Cypress Avenue to, uh, uh, to Maisie Duggan at the moment. So there's a, a huge amount of new plays. So I'm, I'm, my legacy really is not for me to decide, really, actually. And I think it'll take a couple of years, you know, before uh, you know, there might be either harsh or kind words to say about what I do. You know. yeah, I won't be depending on on uh, Fintan O'Toole to tell me I think he, he's been giving me the running commentary throughout well actually that's you know, one of the last questions is what do you think the, how do you think the media and uh, the critics kind of serve the, the theatre, the Irish theatre scene? well look they have a job to do you know they have to, they have to be they, I may disagree with a lot of the critics I may disagree with the cultural commentators uh, I think there's there's there, the, the, there's a difference critic at arts journalism I think I think theatre journalism isn't as strong in this country as, as it could be I think you know we have fascinating critics um, I made it my mind a long time ago at the Abbey not to to try and find a way where a, a critic or rather a review would not damage uh, the potential uh, of an audience to come and see the play, you know, and I think social media and our own audience development uh, through the, both the communication department and community education has allowed it to happen. I would hate to think that any, I'm sure they would too. The reviewers would think that they they would hate to think that their review would stop somebody seeing a play, you know, or certainly stop lots of people seeing the play. It may stop one or two. So I think that's that's my that's my uh, but I, I don't I haven't read reviews in the last you know three to four or five years I haven't read them I get a sense of them I sit down with my team then and get to see how we might manage the various marketing uh, marketing issues so I I I, uh, I wouldn't mean inhaling them. You have created this tradition here now, um, as colleagues leave the building, to ask the top three oh. Abbey or Peacock shows. Now you've done almost 200 of them, I think. Can you? I can't really. I can't. I think, uh, I think when I look back, uh, 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 you know, the fact that we've never lost a production, we never lost a show, uh, even with the worst recession and, and the various cutbacks. No, I think this, I have great memories. I have great memories of actors, of, uh, of like great fine performances, say, Tom von Lawler and Arturo Ui is extraordinary, you know. Um, Derva Crotty recently in Psy, but also in uh, in Three Sisters it was extraordinary, you know. Uh, yeah, I've I've lots of favourites, uh, a lot of favourite performers, Kieran Hines of course, and uh, Shane Cusack in A Few and Evil Days, you know. Uh, and I think in the end, if I, if I, you know, whatever the new plays I've done or whatever. 
the courage and the and watching those actors on the stage every night is something that I think is, is my, the highlight of my time, watching actors grow, giving an actor a challenge, and just watching them deliver for us and communicate to us every night is, is for me, what theatre is all about. Last question, what will you miss about the place the most? Uh, what I miss about, about it is, uh, is supporting writers and giving uh, writers uh, a, a production of their new play. Fiek, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you.